Boss is here. Military parents never miss a beat, and neither does the Johns Hopkins U.S. Family Health Plan. Built for every warrior in your family. With more than 40 years of service to military families, TRICARE Prime Benefits plus exclusive extras. Learn more at warriorsathome.com. Welcome into The Verge, a show which covers the Baltimore Orioles minor leagues. The Verge is part of BSL Radio. Baltimore Sports and Life is dedicated to analysis and discussion on the Orioles, Baltimore Ravens, and the University of Maryland. The site has a team of writers providing coverage of those teams and houses live streaming content weekly. Join the conversations at the message board, like BSL on Facebook, and follow BSL on Twitter. On Twitter. Want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily, then distribute it everywhere and even earn money all in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters, and here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer, so no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Ever since we discovered Spotify for Podcasters, we feel like having options like video podcasts and Q&A lets us be more creative on another level. I highly recommend you give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Welcome to the latest On the Birds Major League Mailbag. This is Zach Spedden. Uh, checking in on the morning of Sunday, June 25th to take your questions about all things Orioles this weekend including Major League stuff as well as some minor league topics. And we're going to go right to this question from Sterling. Now that Cedric Mullins is back, should he resume his role as leadoff hitter or should it be Gunnar Henderson? And then as a follow-up question, Sterling wants to know, fully healthy, what is the Orioles starting nine right now? I was impressed by what Gunnar did in the leadoff spot, and we've known since his time in the minor leagues that he's capable of hitting out of the leadoff spot and doing the things you want a leadoff hitter to do, which is, see a lot of pitches, work the pitcher hard up front, and he does have that power, which is a nice thing. With that said, I'm going with what has gotten the Orioles to this point, which has been Mullins out of that leadoff spot. We saw what he was doing this year, and while it was maybe not on the pace of his 30-30 season from a few years ago, it was still a big step forward from his production last year. I'm going to stick with him in the leadoff spot occasionally move Gunner up there. He would probably be my number two now behind Mullins, but I'm going to stick with Mullins in the leadoff spot. And then as for the starting nine, I think things are pretty much fixed as they stand uh, for the most part. Uh, when healthy, Ryan Mountcastle's probably back at first base. You have Adley Rutzman behind the plate. Second base, I think you're going to continue to see a mix and match with Ramon Arias and Adam Frazier. Third base, uh, you're going to have a mix and match again of Gunnar Henderson and Ramon Arias. And then at shortstop, you probably have Arias, or excuse me, Henderson and Mateo. The outfield is where things start to get a little bit interesting because Aaron Hicks is now making a strong case for regular playing time, or at least semi-regular playing time. So you're going to have Austin Hayes in left, Mullins in center. And then I suspect that there's going to be a lot of nights where you see Aaron Hicks in right field with Santander as a D.H., when Hicks is on the bench, Santander is probably out in right field. And maybe at that point you have Ryan O'Hearn as your D8s. But Hicks, with the way he has played since coming over to the Orioles, I think is at least in the mix now as a quality fourth outfielder 
the rest of the way. And he's going to get more playing time even with Mullins back. And speaking of the outfield, we have this question here from at Felix PA or Felix Pie Burner on Twitter. Pretty solid handle. Should I be buying in on Austin Hayes or might we see another second half collapse? I thought it would be interesting in answering this question to go back and look at what Austin Hayes was doing at this time last year. Now, as a quick recap, Hayes last year hit 270 with a 779 OPS in the first half of the season. And then in the second half, completely bottomed out by batting 220 with a 626 OPS in 60 games played. At this on this day last year, coming into play on August 20 or excuse me, June 25th, Hayes was batting 286 with an 827 OPS. At the same point this year, he's hitting 318 with an 866 OPS. His plate approach really has not changed that much. He is an aggressive hitter. He's always going to be an aggressive hitter. He's always going to walk at a rate that is lower than what I think most of us would like. Right now, he has a 5.8% walk rate, which is the exact same mark that he finished with last year. Now, he has a batting average on balls in play of 395 at this point. Last year at this time, the batting average on balls in play was 321. You look at a batting average on balls in play that's in the 380s, it's not going to be that sustainable over the course of the year. But one thing that Hayes is doing better this year is he's made those swing adjustments that Andy Koska talked about on our show a few months ago that were designed to generate a little more loft and a little more power. And he's been hitting the ball hard this year. So I think that the end result is that what Hayes is doing right now is probably not sustainable. I don't think he's going to win the American League batting title when all is said and done this season. But the collapse won't happen. It's not going to be to the extent that we saw a year ago where Hayes did look like he had a strong all-star case for the first two or three months of the season. And that was one of the Orioles' worst hitters in the second half. This year, I expect steadier production over the final months of the season that when you look at his year-end totals, they're going to be a nice step up from what he did last year. We'll shift gears now and take a prospect focus question from Tony B. Um, he wants to know, could you highlight a couple of minor leaguers who are underperforming compared to expectations? D.L. Hall is probably the guy that jumps out at me. Um, and it's hard with him because the baseline stats aren't that bad for him at Norfolk this year, or at least they weren't that bad for him before he was sent back to Sarasota. But what we saw over the course of this season was that his velocity was down considerably from where we've seen in the past. It was running more in the low to mid-90s rather than the upper 90s. And it felt like he was still struggling with the issue of efficiency, where he would rack up a high pitch count over short outings. The walks were still higher than you would like them to be. The best hope for Hall now is probably that he's able to go down to Sarasota, ramp up his velocity a little bit, get back to the point where he's fully healthy, and then maybe we see him in the bullpen later this year. And honestly, if he can just recover and get back to Norfolk and pitch well in relief there, I'll feel like part of his season was salvaged a little bit. Um, he doesn't have to get all the way to the major leagues for me to feel like you know, his season wasn't somehow salvaged after his initial struggles. If you want to go past him, Frederick Ben Cosme's numbers have not been what I would have expected them to be at Aberdeen this year. But one reason that I'm not going to label him a disappointment, well, really two reasons that I wouldn't label him a disappointment just yet, 
or that he's still just 20 years old and he actually won't turn 21 until Christmas Day. And his walk to strikeout numbers are about where you would want them to be. 13% walk rate compared to a 16% strikeout rate through his first 56 games. Now, he is hitting 230 in that stretch. He has a WRC plus of just 83. So you feel like he needs to step up his production a little bit here, which he does. And one problem that I think has popped up for him this year is that he's hitting the ball on the ground a little bit more than he did at the end of his time at Aberdeen last year, and his line drive rate has come down. When he was so successful at Delmarva last year, he posted a line drive rate of 22.3%. Over a small sample size at Aberdeen late in the year, that number checked in at 22.2%. This year, it's down to 17.8%. Um, so that's something that he's got to work on a little bit, but because the walk-to-strikeout numbers are about where you would want them to be. I'm hopeful that he'll rebound over the next few months and put up a solid year at Aberdeen. We'll go now to this question from Kevin Brown, which is, could we see an overhaul at middle relief with multiple poor performances out of the Orioles' bullpen, either by trade or call-ups? You are going to see an overhaul at some point, because I think in an ideal scenario, the Orioles will be able to get Michael Gibbons and Dylan Tate back to some version themselves. Those are two guys that they were counting on coming into this year. Certainly were counting on Gibbons. Uh, Tate, we knew with the forearm issue, was going to be you know a little dicey in terms of how much you could count on him. But the Orioles were expecting more than what they've gotten out of Gibbons so far. Hopefully those two guys are healthy and able to produce at some level over the summer. And the Orioles can re-add them into the middle relief mix. As for an overhaul, yeah, I do think you're going to see an overhaul in other areas. I would like to see Eduard Bizzardo get a shot at some point. He has pitched really well down in Norfolk. He looked good for the Orioles in spring training. Darwinson Hernandez feels like a possible breakout candidate. And one of those guys who could be successful if he throws strikes more consistently than he has during his previous call-ups in the major leagues. Mondeson Charles just got to AAA, so I don't know how realistic it is to expect him to enter the bullpen mix this season. But he has been lights out over the course of this year, and it feels like whatever adjustments the Orioles have made with him since he came over from the A's are really working. Now, I would like to see the Orioles do that before the trade deadline so we know whether or not they have to go get bullpen help. Trading for relievers at the deadline is never ideal, in my opinion, because you always are going to overpay. You're going to overpay because everyone thinks there are one or two relievers away from either making the playoffs or from furthering their playoff run. So that's going to drive up the demand for relievers, especially in what looks like it's going to be a seller's market at the deadline, which is something I'm going to talk about in a little bit more length later later on in this episode. But I would like to see the Orioles incorporate some different options, see how those pitchers perform, and then know going into the deadline, do they really need to target a reliever Can they get one or two decent middle relievers, either it's a throw-in in in a larger trade or in a smaller move that isn't going to cost them a lot in terms of prospect depth? That's where the Orioles should be focused right now. And I suspect this front office is not going to want to go out and move for a reliever at a premium price. We have a lot of trade deadline-related questions, so I thought that the one that was good to start with is this question from Tony, a member of our Patreon community. 
Tony wants to know if MLB announced they were moving the trade deadline, would you prefer an earlier date or a later date? For the purpose of this year, I would prefer a later date. Move it back maybe two weeks into the middle of August, because what we're seeing right now is that you have enough teams in the mix that could compete for a wild card spot and could be buyers. You also have two divisions that are fairly weak in the AL Central and the NL Central, where you have teams that are under 500 that are still kind of in the playoff picture. So you look for instance, Cleveland comes in today at 37 and 39. You would think that they would be sellers, yet they're only one game behind Minnesota. Detroit is currently nine under 500, yet they're only four and a half out. You have Milwaukee, who's only two above 500 in the NL Central, and they're only a game and a half back of the Reds. So you have a lot of teams that on paper, in most years, would be seen as sellers at this point, yet they're still in the playoff picture. And I don't know that we're really going to sort that out over the next five weeks. However, you add a couple of weeks in, and maybe a team that doesn't have that good of a July gets off to a slow start in August and decides to sell. So that would really clarify some things. I think neutralize it a little bit that you don't have the situation that you're heading for right now, which is... A lot of teams that are really bad clearly should sell, but yet they don't have a lot on their major league roster that is worth moving. So the end result right now would be that the Royals would probably get a premium return for someone like Aroldis Chapman, who is pitching well this year, but shouldn't command that large of a return. Uh, this would also help the Cardinals. Are they going to move Jack Flaherty, who's going to be a free agent at the end of this year? Normally, I don't know that Flaherty would draw that much, but... If you don't have that broad of a market at the trade deadline, someone could very well overpay for Flaherty. So moving the deadline back a couple of weeks, I feel like would sort that out a little bit. Now in different years, I might say you could move it up a little bit, but I would definitely move it back this year. And one other advantage would be that you would get a little bit further away from the draft and you'd get a little bit further away from that and have front office really be able to have a little bit of breathing room a little more breathing room between the trade deadline and the draft, and you would also allow what we're seeing across baseball right now to sort itself out a little more over a couple more weeks. We'll go to this question now from Ben. Uh, sort of prospect-focused, but also major league-focused, which is which players and prospects have changed your perceptions the most since the start of the season? Particularly curious for your thoughts on Westberg, Calder, Mayo, and Ortiz. Have your views on them as potential parts of the O's future or as trade chips evolved since the offseason, you could throw in guys like Taryn Vavra and Kyle Stowers as well. I would say that overall, if I had, if there was a player whose perception, maybe in terms of their future value, I've changed the most on, it would probably be Kowser and Mayo. Because Kowser, I think we're seeing a little bit better balance this year between the strikeouts and the power, which was something he struggled with last year. This year, he has brought those things into a little bit better balance, and it's easier now for me to see him being a you know, 25 home run bat in his best year in the majors without a really high strikeout rate. Whereas Mayo, who I'm going to talk about a little bit more later on, is just having such a good year at Bowie that you feel like offensively the sky could be the limit for him, and you really want to see what he's able to do once he gets to the major leagues, especially because I think there's some versatility defensively that the Orioles really have not tapped into yet. 
Uh, Westberg and Ortiz, I think both of them are going to be solid major leaguers for a long time. I feel better about the chances of Ortiz being a starter at the major league level because his improvements offensively that he's shown over the last two seasons really do appear to be sustainable. Vavra, I see him basically being exactly the same as I saw him before, which is a high-floor utility guy. Stowers, I still think, could be a useful middle-to-bottom-of-the-order bat somewhere in the majors, but I don't think it's going to be with the Orioles. So I see him as more of a trade chip. If he can get healthy and get regular at-bats in Norfolk before the deadline, maybe he moves and maybe you don't even need that. Maybe teams... You have a team out there that likes Stowers enough that they would take a shot on him. And honestly, it wouldn't hurt. Athletic guy could hit for power. If you're a rebuilding team, having him as an option in right field for you over the next couple of years, just to see if you could iron out some of the things he struggles with, like the strikeouts, or he could struggle with, and see if you can make him at least a serviceable everyday option while you rebuild. Or maybe he turns into a quality everyday major leaguer, but I feel like Stowers probably is more of a trade chip at this point. And that goes now to a question from Mark, which is, apart from Jackson Holiday, which two prospect eligible guys are absolutely untouchable for you? This is a great question and one that I could go in a lot of different directions with. For the reasons I just mentioned, Kobe Mayo is kind of veering into that untouchable conversation. Because you're now seeing a possibly elite middle-of-the-order bat who could be at least a solid everyday third baseman defensively, but could also shift out to right field, which is something I want to see more of. I want to get a better sense of how he would perform out there. And while it would be a waste of his arm, he could also play first base. And then for the second player, there's a couple of different directions I could go in. I could make the argument for Cade Povitz because... Outside of Grayson Rodriguez, he is the most potential high-ceiling starting pitcher that you have in the minor leagues right now. And I use that qualifier because Rodriguez is technically not a prospect anymore. You know, Povich has had kind of outing-to-outing up and downs this year where his command some nights is not as sharp as it is others. And that gets him into some trouble, but he has a really quality pitch mix that could make him... I think at worst, a decent mid to back end starter at the major league level and possibly a number two if everything clicks. But then you could also look at Colton Kowser and Heston Kerstad. You can make the argument for Kowser because it looks like he could play in center field. The bat is probably a higher floor than in Kerstad's. However, Kerstad has that card carrying tool with his power. The strikeouts so far don't appear to be as much of a concern as we originally thought, and at the rate he's going, he could be in the major leagues, probably will be in the major leagues this time next year, and could be a very viable middle-of-the-order hitter for you. So if I had to pick between those three players, I might go with Povitz just because you don't really have a lot of options beyond him, or you do have options, but he's probably your highest ceiling option among starting pitchers. Whereas you could deal one of Kowser and still have Kerstad or vice versa and still have Judd Fabian down there. So it's a great question and you could take the four players I mentioned, put them in any order. You could make a bold but not hot take argument for putting Samuel Basayo in here. You could even look at what Judd Fabian has done this year and say that that's a guy who's probably going to crack some top 100 lists 
next year and has a high floor because he could be an everyday center fielder who gets on base and hits for power. So there's a lot of interesting players you could throw into that mix. And, you know, there's an argument for Joey Ortiz, too. That shows how deep the Orioles farm system is right now. We'll go to this question now from SLGS Reds, who wants to know, what does the trade deadline have in store? In your opinion, do we mix, do a mix of buying and selling? If so, who do you think we sell on? I'm anticipating that it's going to be mostly buying this year from the Orioles. They're in the thick of the playoff race right now. I think that they're outperforming expectations, but at the same time, maybe not playing their best baseball. Uh, you could see where they could get better. If you could get more consistency from Gunnar Henderson, if you could get something we really have not seen this year, which is Gunnar Henderson and Adley Rutzman hot at the same time, imagine what that would do for this team. Uh, as we talked about a little bit earlier, the middle relief corps could get better. The starting pitching, I think, has settled into sort of a happy medium where you're going to, you know, it's not flawless, but at the same time, your starters are giving you serviceable outings more often than not. With that said, we know that that's an area where the Orioles can do better. So you could look for them to possibly acquire starting pitching help, maybe the bullpen, but for the reasons I discussed a little bit earlier, I'm a little more skeptical of that. And then if they decide to pursue a bat, Maybe they go for another outfielder or they look around the infield, which brings me to my next point, which is that if they do sell, it's probably going to be one of the veteran infielders, more likely Jorge Mateo or Ramon Arias, because they could bring something back for you of value, more than what you're going to get out of Adam Frazier, who's eligible for free agency at the end of this year and has not played as well as I think you would have hoped. He's had his moments and certainly looks capable, but a lot of ups and downs with him this year. And sort of a bat off the bench who, you know, can draw walks and work the count. I don't know what a team is really trading for. Whereas Mateo's speed and defense could draw interest from someone. Um, Urias, when his bat is on, he gives you good doubles power, can draw walks. We know that he also was, a, you know, the reigning gold glove winner at third base. He's played a pretty solid second base defensively this year. Not to mention both players have multiple years of team control remaining. So if they do sell, it's going to be one of those guys. And it's also a fact, too, that some of the relievers that you would have thought the Orioles could trade uh, in the offseason, like CNL Perez or maybe Keegan Aiken, aren't going to bring a ton in return right now with their performances. So I suspect that if they do sell, it's going to be one of those two guys. And that brings me now to a few questions related to Jorge Mateo, Adam Frazier, Ramon Arias, the Orioles infield situation, um, etc. Go to two questions here from Ben as well from Justin. Ben wants me to solve our Mateo and Frazier quote-unquote problem and also ask which infield performed better in the majors for the remainder of 2023 if they were everyday starters for the O's. Frazier and Mateo or Westberg and Ortiz. And then Justin wants to know, I know we talk about it all the time, but do you have any insight to the reason that Ortiz, who is a defensive whiz, is on the bench when Mateo is struggling? That question is kind of hard for me to answer. And the reason for that is that I actually thought in his two previous call-ups to the major leagues this year, the Orioles were fairly aggressive with Ortiz. They were giving him some starts at second base, letting him play shortstop. And I felt like for the most part, he was 
delivering about what you could have expected, playing good defense. He was hitting the ball hard. It looked like he was driving the ball in the air a little bit more towards the end of his most recent call-up. So I thought that the Orioles were kind of going the opposite direction of Kyle Stowers, where they brought Stowers up and didn't use him a whole lot, whereas Ortiz, they actually were going to put him in. This time around, that hasn't been the case. And I don't know what that is. The only two things I could draw on are maybe that they feel like Mateo is closer to getting out of his slump than what is meeting the eye test right now. Um, And then a mixture of wanting to get Ramon Arias consistent at bats to see if he can settle in at the plate. And then the fact that Ortiz had been on the IL at Norfolk for a little while before his most recent call-up. Maybe they feel like he's a little bit cold in that sense, but then in that way, I don't know why you would bring him up other than the fact he's on the 40-man. So it's a hard question to answer. I'm sure there is some rationale behind it, but not one that I can easily pinpoint. As for Ben's questions, um, the Mateo and Fraser problem, that probably only solves itself. And I'm guessing by solve, Ben wants to know if I would put Jordan Westberg in place of one of those two guys. Performance-wise, that move has merits that speak for itself. My guess is that if the Orioles make a change, both of those guys are probably relegated to the bench a little bit more. In fact, I feel like we are all we are already starting to see Mateo relegated to the bench a little bit more. And Aaron Hicks also plays a part in this because if Hicks continues to hit well, he probably is a better defensive right fielder than Anthony Santander, which means that Santander is going to DH more, which also means that Gunnar Henderson is going to play in the infield more. So Mateo could be on the bench more often at that point. Fraser, I don't know if he has a longer lease because he was brought in as a free agent and because he has made some improvements offensively this year, at least in terms of his power production. But I don't know if you can stick with him the rest of the way at second base and keep winning unless it gets to the point where the rest of your lineup is doing so well that you could have Frazier hitting 238 to 240 as your number nine hitter and feel like you can get away with it. As for which infield would perform better for the remainder of 2023 if they were everyday starters, Westberg and Ortiz have the higher ceiling, but Frazier and Mateo, you know what you're getting. Uh, the one concern I have with Westbrook is actually not so much the power, which is something that's brought up a lot. You know, the fact that he's a dead pool hitter who's not going to hit as many home runs at Cannon Yards as he has at Harbor Park. I'm not as worried about that, and I'm more concerned about whether or not the strikeouts would go up, <clears throat> would go up in a way that become a problem, and the walks don't really pick up because Westbrook is kind of an aggressive hitter, especially when he's hot. Um, but there's no question, I believe, that Westberg and Ortiz have the higher ceiling than Fraser and Mateo at this point. We're going to go with a couple of off-topic questions here. And if you wonder what goes on in the Patreon chat uh, when they're not discussing baseball, you get topics like this, which are about convenience store food. And Brandon Stoneberg brought this one into the mailbag this week, and he wanted to know which is better between Seats, Wawa, and Royal Farms and why is it Wawa? And Brandon, why do you ask that question to someone from Hagerstown and not expect the answer to be seats? Uh, you can go in there. You get the steak salad or the steak wrap at any time, and it's really good. In all seriousness, um, 
My personal ranking would probably go Seats 1, Royal Farms 2, Wawa 3, but that's a little bit of geographical bias because I didn't have a Wawa near me until very recently. What I will say, though, is a shout-out to Wawa. As someone who has a car where the tire will have low air pressure for no apparent reason whatsoever, Wawa has really high-quality free air pumps at their gas stations at least at the station that is closest to me here in Baltimore City. So I give them a lot of credit for that one. In that respect, I would put them ahead of seats and ahead of Royal Farms where I have to say the air pump service has been a little spotty over the years. And somehow you've gotten me going off on a food tangent, from a food tangent to a tangent about air tire pressure. So I don't know how that happened, but I'm glad that the two hours that this conversation unfolded in the Patreon chat happened when it happened because it was a nice conversation. There was even a poll question thrown in. The last I saw, Wawa was winning. But remember, there's a strong uh, I-95 corridor presence in the Patreon chat. I'm pretty sure there is at least. And that probably tilts the scales geographically to Wawa. Yoni has an off-topic question that actually does get us back into baseball. He wants to know how Bob, Nick, and I know each other. And the answer to that question actually is that Bob, Nick, and I did not know each other until we started hosting on The Verge. The only thing we had in common was that all three of us contributed to BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com. I've been there since 2016. I believe that Bob has been there roughly the same amount of time. And Nick, if I am remembering correctly, and he can correct this if my memory is off, did not write his first article for BSL until a few months before our first episode in early 2020. So I knew Bob a little bit from the message board and from reading his work on the site, but I had never met him in person. Nick had barely been with BSL when the show started. And just to give a backstory, we did not do a rehearsal show before our first episode. We had a call with every co-host of a BSL podcast. As you know, there are several shows on BSL radio, including Talking Terps, The Bank, The Chris Stoner Show, The Warehouse. Please go check them out when you have the chance. They're all good episodes. They're all good podcasts. We were on a call with all of them, or all the hosts for those podcasts at that time. And then we started kind of communicating back and forth through text message, Bob, Nick, and I, discussing what we wanted to talk about, And then we went and we did our first show, and that was it. Um, And then we did not meet each other in person until the summer of 2021 when the three of us took in a game together at Bowie. Bob and I met each other for the first time about a week before that at an Orioles game. Bob and I don't live too far apart from each other here in Maryland, but Nick is down in Virginia, so we don't see him in person very much. And in fact, the only two times that the three of us have been together in person had been that game of Bowie in 2021 and then our live show last fall at Full Tilt Brewing. Which brings me to this point, by the way. Uh, If you are connected to a brewery or restaurant in the Baltimore area and are interested in doing a live event with us, let us know because we had a great relationship with Full Tilt Brewing. Unfortunately, they are no longer open. We miss that tap room at York and Bologna dearly. But we want to have a live show again, and uh, we would like to do one maybe later this summer or early in the fall. So if you've got some connections and want to bring us into your venue, let us know because we would definitely 
be interested. We'll wrap up with this question from David Adams, who is checking in, looking for previews of the series uh, between the Red, between the Orioles and the Reds, and the Orioles and the Twins, which are the next two slates on the Orioles schedule this homestand. Uh, starting out with the Reds, they have suddenly become a much more interesting and much more exciting team. They're currently leading the NL Central. Their 12-game win streak, though, was snapped on Saturday against Atlanta. It looks right now like the Red Orioles will face Brandon Williamson in Monday's opener, followed by Andrew Abbott on Tuesday, and then Luke Weaver on Wednesday. Andrew Abbott is the pitcher that I'm most interested in seeing from the Reds. He is their second-round pick out of UVA in 2021. He has just four starts into his major league career, and he has been pretty solid to this point, racking up 22 strikeouts against nine walks and 23 and a third innings pitch, while posting a 1.14 ERA. Um, excuse me, it's 23 and two thirds innings pitch. You look at the opponents he has faced so far, and it's kind of a mixture of decent lineups against some teams that have been pretty bad this year. His first outing in the major leagues was against Milwaukee. That was followed up by starts at St. Louis and Houston. And then he most recently pits at home against Colorado, striking out a career-high 10 batters in a no decision, but a game that the Reds would still win. So you could make the case that the Orioles lineup is locked in, that it could be his toughest test yet, but it's not as though he hasn't been tested. Houston might not be the powerhouse that it's been in the past, but there's still some dangerous hitters. And as we saw when the Orioles faced the Brewers a few weeks ago, there are some hitters in their lineup that can do damage as well. But Abbott is just part of a trend that the Reds have had this year of bringing up their young guys and having them succeed. Ellie De La Cruz has been the most prominent example of that. I am really looking forward to watching him. But Matt McClain has been solid as well since he came up from Louisville. So a couple months ago, this series against the Orioles and the Reds didn't look like it was going to be very interesting. But suddenly, it has a lot more intrigue. As for the Twins, they currently lead the AL Central. They will be coming into Baltimore on Friday. Uh, roster resource over at Fangraphs has Pablo Lopez projected as Friday starter. We don't have any probables beyond Friday, but the Orioles would draw one of the Twins, or actually their biggest offseason acquisition, um, as he came over in that trade from the Marlins, and he's been fairly solid for them this year. 96 innings pitch, he has struck out 120 batters against 27 walks with a 4-4-1 ERA and an XFIP of 3-4-3. The Twins lineup is um, interesting, to say the least. They are currently fourth in the American League with 102 home runs, but they also lead the league in strikeouts at 799, ahead of the second-place A's at 735. That total also leads all of baseball right now. So the Twins, a lot of guys in that lineup who are going to strike out, but they have also are capable of hitting the long ball. The only teams right now that place ahead of the Twins in terms of home runs are the Rays at 122, followed by the Angels at 115, and then the Yankees at 112. The team OPS for the Twins this season is at 96. That's four ticks below the league average. By comparison, the Orioles OPS plus is at 107, which is seven notches above the league average. Um, Overall, overall, I think that kind of reflects where the Twins are. This is a 500 team where you could see some real variances over the next couple of months. Either they get hot 
and run away with that division and go into the playoffs at least looking like they could win a series. Or they do what they did last year and really fade to the pack in the second half. And suddenly that division becomes you know winnable for a team like the Guardians or maybe even the Tigers. We'll see how things go, but I think that's going to be an interesting matchup next weekend. It's also going to be fun to see what Yenier Cano does against his old team when he gets the opportunity to come out of the bullpen, hopefully in the situation where the Orioles are leading next weekend. And with that, that's going to wrap up uh, this week's mailbag. Bob, Nick, and I will be on the air Monday night. We're going to talk about the Norfolk Tides clinching a playoff spot and dive into a little bit of draft coverage as well, so you aren't going to want to miss that. In the meantime, thank you as always for your excellent questions. Keep them coming each week as we dive into our Major League Mailbag. Uh, Thank you to listening to this edition of our Major League Mailbag. That'll do it for this week's episode of On The Verge. Be sure to check out our Patreon page where you can help show your support for the show and get bonus content, including monthly top 50 updates to our prospect list and daily game recaps during the season and much, much more. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.